Chapter Eight of The Magician by Somerset Maugham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Susie could not persuade herself that Haddo's regret was sincere. The humility of it aroused her suspicion. She could not get out of her mind the ugly slyness of that smile which succeeded on his face the first passionate look of deadly hatred. Her fancy suggested various dark means whereby Oliver Haddo might take vengeance on his enemy, and she was at pains to warn Arthur. But he only laughed. <laughs> the man's a funk, he said. Do you think if he'd had anything in him at all he would have let me kick him around without trying to defend himself? Haddo's cowardice increased the disgust with which Arthur regarded him. He was amused by Susie's trepidation. <laughs> what on earth do you suppose he can do? He can't drop a brickbat on my head. If he shoots me, he'll get his head cut off, and he won't be such an ass as to risk that. Margaret was glad that the incident had relieved them of Oliver's society. She met him in the street a couple of days later, and since he took off his hat in the French fashion without waiting for her to acknowledge him, she was able to make her cut more pointed. She began to discuss with Arthur the date of their marriage. It seemed to her that she had got out of Paris all it could give her, and she wished to begin a new life. Her love for Arthur appeared on a sudden more urgent, and she was filled with delight at the thought of the happiness she would give him. A day or two later, Susie received a telegram. It ran as follows. Please meet me at the Gare du Nord, 2.40. Nancy Clerk. It was an old friend who was apparently arriving in Paris that afternoon. A photograph of her with a bold signature stood on the chimney-piece, and Susie gave it an inquisitive glance. She had not seen Nancy for so long that it surprised her to receive the urgent message. "'What a bore it is,' she said. "'I suppose I must go.' They meant to have tea on the other side of the river, but the journey to the station was so long that it would not be worth Susie's while to come back in the interval, and they arranged, therefore, to meet at the house to which they were invited. Susie started a little before two. Margaret had a class that afternoon and set out two or three minutes later. As she walked through the courtyard, she started nervously, for Oliver Haddo passed slowly by. He did not seem to see her. Suddenly he stopped, put his hand to his heart, and fell heavily to the ground. The concierge, the only person at hand, ran forward with a cry. She knelt down, and, looking round with terror, caught sight of Margaret. "'Oh, mademoiselle, venez vite!' she cried. Margaret was obliged to go. Her heart beat horribly. She looked down at Oliver, and he seemed dead. She forgot that she loathed him. Instinctively she knelt down by his side and loosened his collar. He opened his eyes. An expression of terrible anguish came into his face. "'For the love of God, take me in for one moment,' he sobbed. "'I shall die in the street.' Her heart was moved toward him. He could not go into the poky den, evil-smelling and airless of the concierge, but with her help Margaret raised him to his feet, and together they brought him to the studio. He sank painfully into a chair. "'Shall I fetch you some water?' asked Margaret. "'Can you get a pastille out of my pocket?' He swallowed a white tabloid, which she took out of a case attached to his watch-chain. "'I'm very sorry to cause you this 
trouble, he gasped. I suffer from a, a disease of the heart, and sometimes I am very near death. I'm glad that I was able to help you, she said. He seemed able to breathe more easily. She left him to himself for a while so that he might regain his strength. She took up a book and began to read. Presently, without moving from his chair, he spoke. You must hate me for intruding on you. His voice was stronger, and her pity waned as he seemed to recover. She answered with freezing indifference. I couldn't do less for you than I did. I would have brought a dog into my room if it seemed hurt. I see that you wish me to go. He got up and moved toward the door, but he staggered and with a groan tumbled to his knees. Margaret sprang forward to help him. She reproached herself bitterly for those scornful words. The man had barely escaped death, and she was merciless. Oh, please, so stay as long as you like, she cried. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hurt you. He dragged himself with difficulty back to the chair, and she, conscience-stricken, stood over him helplessly. She poured out a glass of water, but he motioned it away as though he would not be beholden to her even for that. "'Is there nothing I can do for you at all?' she exclaimed painfully. "'Nothing, except allow me to sit in this chair,' he gasped. "'I hope you'll remain as, as long as you choose.' He did not reply. She sat down again and pretended to read. In a little while he began to speak. His voice reached her as if from a long way off. "'Will you?' never forgive me for what i did the other day she answered without looking at him her back still turned can it matter to you if i forgive you or not you have not pity i told you then how sorry i was that a sudden uncontrollable pain drove me to do a thing which immediately i bitterly regretted don't you think it must have been hard for me under the actual circumstances to confess my fault i wish you not to speak of it i don't want to think of that horrible scene if you knew how lonely i was and how unhappy you would have a little mercy his voice was strangely moved she could not doubt now that he was sincere you think me a charlatan because i aim at things that are unknown to you you won't try to understand. You won't give me any credit for striving with all my soul to a very great end. She made no reply, and for a time there was silence. His voice was different now, and curiously seductive. You look upon me with disgust and scorn. You almost persuaded yourself to let me die in the street, rather than stretch out to me a helping hand and if you hadn't been merciful then almost against your will i should have died it can make no difference to you how i regard you she whispered she did not know why his soft low tones mysteriously wrung her heartstrings her pulse began to beat more quickly it makes all the difference in the world. It is horrible to think of your contempt. 
I feel your goodness and your purity. I can hardly bear my own unworthiness. You turn your eyes away from me as though I were unclean. She turned her chair a little and looked at him. She was astonished at the change in his appearance. His hideous obesity seemed no longer repellent, for his eyes wore a new expression. They were incredibly tender now, and they were moist with tears. His mouth was tortured by a passionate distress. Margaret had never seen so much unhappiness on a man's face, and an overwhelming remorse seized her. "'I don't want to be unkind to you,' she said. "'I will go.' That is how I can best repay you for what you have done. The words were so bitter, so humiliated, that the color rose to her cheeks. I ask you to stay, but let us talk of other things. For a moment he kept silence. He seemed no longer to see Margaret, and she watched him thoughtfully. His eyes rested on a print of La Giaconda which hung on the wall. Suddenly he began to speak. He recited the honeyed words with which Walter Pater expressed his admiration for that consummate picture. Hers is the head upon which all the ends of the world are come, and the eyelids are a little weary. It is a beauty wrought out from within upon the flesh, the deposit little cell by cell of strange thoughts and fantastic reveries and exquisite passions. Set it for a moment beside one of those white Greek goddesses or beautiful women of antiquity, and how would they be troubled by this beauty into which the soul with all its maladies has passed? All the thoughts and experience of the world have etched and moulded there, in that which they have a power to refine and make expressive the outward form, the animalism of Greece, the lust of Rome, the mysticism of the Middle Ages, with its spiritual ambition and imaginative loves, the return of the pagan world, the sins of the Borgias. His voice, poignant and musical, blended with the suave music of the words, so that Margaret felt she had never before known their divine significance. She was intoxicated with their beauty. She wished him to continue, but had not the strength to speak. As if he guessed her thought, he went on and now his voice had a richness in it as of an organ heard afar off. It was like an overwhelming fragrance, and she could hardly bear it. She is older than the rocks among which she sits. Like the vampire, she has been dead many times, and learned the secrets of the grave, and has been a diver in deep seas, and keeps her fallen day about her and trafficked for strange evils with eastern merchants, and as Leda was the mother of Helen of Troy, and as Saint Anne the mother of Mary, and all this has been to her but as the sound of lyres and flutes, and lives only in the delicacy with which it has moulded the changing lineaments and tinged the eyelids and the hands. Oliver Haddo began then to speak of Leonardo da Vinci, mingling with his own fantasies the perfect words of that essay, which so wonderful was his memory he seemed to know by heart. He found exotic fancies in the likeness between St. John the Baptist, 
with his uh, soft flesh and waving hair, and Bacchus with his ambiguous smile. Seen through his eyes, the seashore and the St. Anne had the airless lethargy of some damask chapel in a Spanish nunnery, and over the landscapes brooded a wan spirit of evil that was very troubling. He loved the mysterious pictures, in which the painter had sought to express something beyond the limits of painting, something of unsatisfied desire, and of longing for unhuman passions. Oliver Haddo found this quality in unlikely places, and his words gave a new meaning to paintings that Margaret had passed thoughtlessly by. There was the portrait of a statuary by Bronzino in the long gallery of the Louvre. The features were rather large, the face rather broad, the expression was sombre, almost surly, in the repose of the painted canvas, and the eyes were brown, almond-shaped like those of an Oriental the red lips were exquisitely modelled, and the sensuality was curiously disturbing. The dark chestnut hair, cut short, curled over the head with an infinite grace. The skin was like ivory, softened with a delicate carmine. There was in that beautiful countenance more than beauty, for what most fascinated the observer was a supreme and disdainful indifference to the passion of others. It was a vicious face, except that beauty could never be quite vicious. It was a cruel face, except that indolence could never be quite cruel. It was a face that haunted you, and yet your admiration was alloyed with an unreasoning terror. The hands were nervous and adroit, with long fashioning fingers, and you felt that at their touch the clay almost moulded itself into gracious forms. With Haddo's subtle words, the character of that man rose before her, cruel yet indifferent, indolent and passionate, cold yet sensual, unnatural secrets dwelt in his mind, and mysterious crimes, and a lust for the knowledge that was arcane. Oliver Haddo was attracted by all that was unusual, deformed, and monstrous, by the pictures that represented the hideousness of man, or that reminded you of his mortality. He summoned before Margaret the whole array of Ribera's ghoulish dwarfs, with their cunning smile, the insane light of their eyes, and their malice. He dwelt with a horrible fascination upon their malformations, the humped backs, the club feet, the hydrocephalic heads. He described the picture by Valdez Lael, in a certain place at Seville, which represents a priest at the altar, and the altar is sumptuous with gilt and florid carving. He wears a magnificent cope and a surplice of exquisite lace, but he wears them as though their weight was more than he could bear, and in the meagre trembling hands, and in the white ashen face, in the dark hollowness of the eyes, there is a bodily corruption that is terrifying. He seems to hold together with difficulty the bonds of the flesh, but with no eager yearning of the soul to burst its prison only with despair. It is as if the Lord Almighty had forsaken him, and the high heavens were empty of their solace. All the beauty of life appears forgotten, and there is nothing in the world but decay. A ghastly putrefaction has attacked already the living man, the worms of the grave, the piteous horror of mortality, and the darkness before him offer naught but fear. Beyond dark night is seen, and a turbulent sea. 
the dark night of the soul of which the mystics write, and the troublous sea of life whereon there is no refuge for the weary and the sick at heart. Then, as if in pursuance of a definite plan, he analyzed with a searching, vehement intensity the curious talent of the modern Frenchman Gustave Moreau. Margaret had lately visited the Luxembourg, and his pictures were fresh in her memory. She had found in them little, save a decorative arrangement marred by faulty drawing. But Oliver Haddo gave them at once a new esoteric import. Those effects, as of a Florentine jewel, the clustered colors, emerald and ruby, the deep blue of sapphires, the atmosphere of scented chambers, the mystic persons who seem ever about secret religious rites, combining in his cunning phrases to create, as it were, a pattern on her soul of morbid and mysterious intricacy. Those pictures were filled with a strange sense of sin, and the mind that contemplated them was burdened with the decadence of Rome and with the passionate vice of the Renaissance, and it was tortured, too, by all the introspection of this later day. Margaret listened rather breathlessly with the excitement of an explorer before whom is spread the plain of an undiscovered continent. The painters she knew spoke of their art technically, and this imaginative appreciation was new to her. She was horribly fascinated by the personality that imbued these elaborate sentences. Haddo's eyes were fixed upon hers, and she responded to his words like a delicate instrument made for recording the beatings of the heart. She felt an extraordinary languor. At last he stopped. Margaret neither moved nor spoke. She might have been under a spell. It seemed to her that she had no power in her limbs. "'I want to do something for you, in return for what you have done for me,' he said. He stood up and went to the piano. "'Sit in this chair,' he said. She did not dream of disobeying. He began to play. Margaret was hardly surprised that he played marvellously. Yet it was almost incredible that those fat, large hands should have such a tenderness of touch. His fingers caressed the notes with a peculiar suavity, and he drew out of the piano effects which she had scarcely thought possible. He seemed to put into the notes a troubling, ambiguous passion, and the instrument had the tremulous emotion of a human being. It was strange and terrifying. She was vaguely familiar with the music to which she listened but there was in it under his fingers an exotic savour that made it harmonious with all that he had said that afternoon. His memory was indeed astonishing. He had an infinite tact to know the feeling that occupied Margaret's heart, and what he chose seemed to be exactly that which at the moment she imperatively needed. Then he began to play things she did not know. It was music the like of which she had never heard, barbaric, with a plaintive weirdness that brought to her fancy the moonlit nights of desert places, with palm trees mute in the windless air and tawny distances. She seemed to know torturous narrow streets, white houses of silence with strange moon shadows, and the glow of yellow light within, and the tinkling of uncouth instruments, and the acrid scents of eastern perfumes. 
It was like a procession passing through her mind of persons who were not human, yet existed mysteriously with a life of vampires, Mona Lisa and John the Baptist, Bacchus, and the mother of Mary went with enigmatic motions. But the daughter of Herodias raised her hands as though engaged forever in a mystic rite to invoke outlandish gods. Her face was very pale, and her dark eyes were sleepless, the jewels of her girdle gleamed with sombre fires, and her dress was of colours that have long been lost. The smile, in which was all the sorrow of the world and all its wickedness, beheld the wan head of the saint, and, with a voice that was cold with the coldness of death, she murmured the words of the poet. I am amorous of thy body, Yokanan. Thy body is white like the lilies of a field that the mower hath never mowed. Thy body is white like the snows that lie on the mountains of Judea and come down into the valleys. The roses in the garden of the Queen of Arabia are not so white as thy body. Neither the roses in the garden of the Queen of Arabia, the garden of spices of the Queen of Arabia, nor the feet of the dawn when the light on the leaves, nor the breast of the moon when she lies on the breast of the sea. There is nothing in the world so white as thy body. Suffer me to touch thy body. Oliver Haddo ceased to play. Neither of them stirred. At last Margaret sought by an effort to regain her self-control. "'I shall begin to think that you really are a magician,' she said lightly. "'I could show you strange things if you cared to see them,' he answered, again raising his eyes to her. "'I don't think you will ever get me to believe in occult philosophy,' she laughed. "'Yet it reigned in Persia with the Magi. It endowed India with wonderful traditions. It civilized Greece to the sounds of Orpheus's lyre.' He stood before Margaret, towering over her in his huge bulk, and there was a singular fascination in his gaze. It seemed that he spoke only to conceal from her that he was putting forth now all the power that was in him. It concealed the first principles of science and the calculations of Pythagoras. It established empires by its oracles, and at its voice tyrants grew pale upon their thrones. It governed the minds of some by curiosity, and others it ruled by fear. His voice grew very low and it was so seductive that Margaret's brain reeled. The sound of it was overpowering, like too sweet a fragrance. I tell you that for this art nothing is impossible. It commands the elements, and knows the language of the stars, and directs the planets in their courses. The moon at its bidding falls blood-red from the sky. The dead rise up and form into ominous words the night wind that moans through their skulls. Heaven 
and hell are its province, and all forms lovely and hideous, and love and hate. With Circe's wand it can change men into beasts of the field, and to them it can give a monstrous humanity. Life and death are in the right hand, and in the left of him who knows its secrets. It confers wealth by the transmutation of metals, and immortality by its quintessence. Margaret could not hear what he said. A gradual lethargy seized her under his baleful glance, and she had not even the strength to wish to free herself. She seemed bound to him already by hidden chains. "'If you have powers, show them,' she whispered, hardly conscious that she spoke. Suddenly he released the enormous tension with which he held her. Like a man who has exerted all his strength to some end, the victory won, he loosened his muscles with a faint sigh of exhaustion. Margaret did not speak, but she knew that something horrible was about to happen. Her heart beat like a prisoned bird, with helpless flutterings, but it seemed too late now to draw back. Her words, by a mystic influence, had settled something beyond possibility of recall. On the stove was a small bowl of polished brass, in which water was kept in order to give a certain moisture to the air. Oliver Haddo put his hand in his pocket and drew out a little silver box. He tapped it, with a smile, as a man taps a snuff-box, and it opened. He took an infinitesimal quantity of a blue powder that it contained, and threw it on the water in the brass bowl. Immediately a bright flame sprang up, and Margaret gave a cry of alarm. Oliver looked at her quickly and motioned her to remain still. She saw that the water was on fire. It was burning as brilliantly, as hotly, as if it were common gas, and it burned with the same dry, hoarse roar. Suddenly it was extinguished. She leaned forward and saw that the bowl was empty. The water had been consumed, as though it were straw, and not a drop remained. She passed her hand absently across her forehead. "'But water cannot burn,' she muttered to herself. It seemed that Haddo knew what she thought, for he smiled strangely. "'Do you know that nothing more destructive can be invented than this blue powder, and I have enough to burn up all the water in Paris? Who dreamt that water might burn like chaff?' He paused, seeming to forget her presence. He looked thoughtfully at the little silver box— but it can be made only in trivial quantities, at enormous expense, and with exceeding labor. It is so volatile that you cannot keep it for three days. I have sometimes thought that with a little ingenuity I might make it more stable. I might so modify it that, like radium, it lost no strength as it burned, and then I should possess the greatest secret that has ever been in the mind of man." for there would be no end of it. It would continue to burn while there was a drop of water on the earth, and the whole world would be consumed. But it would be a frightful thing to have in one's hands, for once it were cast upon the waters, the doom of all that existed would be sealed beyond repeal. He took a long breath, and his eyes glittered with a devilish ardor. His voice was hoarse with overwhelming emotion. 
Sometimes I am haunted by the wild desire to have seen the great and final scene when the irrevocable flames poured down the river, hurrying along the streams of the earth, searching out the moisture in all growing things, tearing it even from the eternal rocks, when the flames poured down like the rushing of the wind, and all that lived fled from before them till they came to the sea, and the sea itself was consumed in vehement fire. Margaret shuddered, but she did not think the man was mad. She had ceased to judge him. He took one more particle of that atrocious powder and put it in the bowl. Again he thrust his hand in his pocket and brought out a handful of some crumbling substance that might have been dried leaves, leaves of different sorts, broken and powdery. There was a trace of moisture in them still, for a low flame sprang up immediately at the bottom of the dish, and a thick vapour filled the room. It had a singular and pungent odour that Margaret did not know. It was difficult to breathe, and she coughed. She wanted to beg Oliver to stop, but could not. He took the bowl in his hands and brought it to her. "'Look!' he commanded. She bent forward, and at the bottom saw a blue fire of a peculiar solidity, as though it consisted of molten metal. It was not still, but writhed, strangely, like serpents of fire tortured by their own unearthly ardor. "'Breathe very deeply,' she did as he told her. A sudden trembling came over her, and darkness fell across her eyes. She tried to cry out, but could utter no sound. Her brain reeled. It seemed to her that Haddo bade her cover her face. She gasped for breath, and it was as if the earth spun under her feet. She appeared to travel at an immeasurable speed. She made a slight movement, and Haddo told her not to look around. An immense terror seized her. She did not know whither she was born, and still they went quickly, quickly, and the hurricane itself would have lagged behind them. At last their motion ceased, and Oliver was holding her arm. "'Don't be afraid,' he said. "'Open your eyes and stand up.' The night had fallen, but it was not the comfortable night that soothes the troubled minds of mortal men. It was a night that agitated the soul mysteriously, so that each nerve in the body tingled. There was a lurid darkness which displayed and yet distorted the objects that surrounded them. No moon shone in the sky, but small stars appeared to dance on the heather, vague night-fires like spirits of the damned. They stood in a vast and troubled waste, with huge stony boulders and leafless trees, rugged and gnarled like tortured souls in pain. It was as if there had been a devastating storm, and the country reposed after the flood of rain and the tempestuous wind and the lightning. All things about them appeared dumbly to suffer, like a man racked by torments who has not the strength even to realize that his agony has ceased. Margaret heard the flight of monstrous birds, and they seemed to whisper strange things on their passage. Oliver took her hand. He led her steadily to a crossroad and she did not know if they walked amid rocks or tombs. She heard the sound of a trumpet, and from all parts strangely appearing where before was nothing, a turbulent assembly surged around her. That vast empty space was suddenly filled by shadowy forms, and they swept along like the waves of the sea crowding upon one another's heels. 
and it seemed that all the mighty dead appeared before her, and she saw grim tyrants and painted courtesans and Roman emperors in their purple and sultans of the East. All those fierce evil women of olden time passed by her side, and now it was Mona Lisa, and now the subtle daughter of Herodias and Jezebel looked out upon her from beneath her painted brows, and Cleopatra turned away a wan, lewd face, and she saw the insatiable mouth and the wanton eyes of Messalina, and Faustine was haggard with the eternal fires of lust. She saw cardinals in their scarlet and warriors in their steel, gay gentlemen in periwigs and ladies in powder and patch, and on a sudden, like leaves by the wind, all these were driven before the silent throngs of the oppressed, and they were innumerable as the sands of the sea. Their thin faces were earthly with want, and cavernous from disease, and their eyes were dull with despair. They passed in their tattered motley, some in the fantastic rags of the beggars of Albrecht Durer, and some in the grey cerecloths of Lanen. Many wore the blouses and the caps of the rabble in France, and many the dingy, smoke-grimed weeds of English poor. And they surged onward like a riotous crowd in narrow streets flying in terror before the mounted troops. It seemed as though all the world were gathered there in strange confusion. Then all again was void and Margaret's gaze was riveted upon a great ruined tree that stood in that waste place, alone, in ghastly desolation, and though a dead thing, it seemed to suffer a more than human pain. The lightning had torn it asunder, but the wind of centuries had sought in vain to drag up its roots. The tortured branches, bare of any twig, were like a titan's arms, convulsed with intolerable anguish and in a moment she grew sick with fear, for a change came into the tree, and the tremulousness of life was in it. The rough bark was changed into brutish flesh, and the twisted branches into human arms. It became a monstrous goat-legged thing, more vast than the creatures of nightmare. She saw the horns and the long beard, the great hairy legs with their hoofs, and the man's rapacious hands, the face was horrible with lust and cruelty, and yet it was divine. It was Pan, playing on his pipes, and the lecherous eyes caressed her with hideous tenderness. But even while she looked, as the mist of early day rising discloses a fair country, the animal part of that ghoulish creature seemed to fall away, and she saw a lovely youth, titanic but sublime, leaning against a massive rock. He was more beautiful than the Adam of Michelangelo, who wakes into life at the call of the Almighty, and like him freshly created, he had the adorable languor of one who feels still in his limbs the soft rain on the loose brown earth. Naked and full of majesty he lay, the outcast son of the morning, and she dared not look upon his face for she knew it was impossible to bear the undying pain that darkened it with ruthless shadows. Impelled by a great curiosity, she sought to come nearer, but the vast figure seemed strangely to dissolve into a cloud, 
and immediately she felt herself again surrounded by a hurrying throng. Then came all legendary monsters and foul beasts of a madman's fancy. In the darkness she saw enormous toads with paws pressed to their flanks, and huge limping scarabs, shelled creatures the like of which she had never seen, and noisome brutes with horny scales and round crabs' eyes, uncouth primeval things, and winged serpents, and creeping animals begotten of the slime. She heard shrill cries and peals of laughter, and the terrifying rattle of men at the point of death. Haggard women, dishevelled and lewd, carried wine, and when they spilt it there were stains like the stains of blood. And it seemed to Margaret that a fire burned in her veins, and her soul fled from her body. But a new soul came in its place, and suddenly she knew all that was obscene. She took part in some festival of hideous lust, and the wickedness of the world was patent to her eyes. She saw things so vile that she screamed in terror, and she heard Oliver laugh in derision by her side. It was a scene of indescribable horror, and she put her hands to her eyes so that she might not see. She felt Oliver Haddo take her hands. She would not let him drag them away. Then she heard him speak. "'You need not be afraid.' His voice was quite natural once more, and she realized with a start that she was sitting quietly in the studio. She looked around her with frightened eyes. Everything was exactly as it had been. The early night of autumn had fallen, and the only light in the room came from the fire. There was still that vague, acrid scent of the substance which Haddo had burned. "'Shall I light the candles?' he said. He struck a match and lit those which were on the piano. They threw a strange light. Then Margaret suddenly remembered all that she had seen, and she remembered that Haddo had stood by her side. Shame seized her, intolerable shame, so that the color rising to her cheeks seemed actually to burn them. She hid her face in her hands and burst into tears. "'Go away,' she said. "'For God's sake, go!' He looked at her for a moment, and the smile came to his lips, which Susie had seen after his tussle with Arthur, when last he was in the studio. "'When you want me, you will find me in the Rue de Vaugoreau, number 209,' he said. "'Knock at the second door on the left, on the third floor.' She did not answer. She could only think of her appalling shame. "'I'll write it down for you in case you forget.' He scribbled the address on a sheet of paper that he found on the table. Margaret took no notice, but sobbed as though her heart would break. Suddenly, looking up with a start, she saw that he was gone. She had not heard him open the door or close it. She sank down on her knees and prayed desperately, as though some terrible danger threatened her. But when she heard Susie's key in the door, Margaret sprang to her feet. She stood with her back to the fireplace, her hands behind her, in the attitude of a prisoner protesting his innocence. Susie was too much annoyed to observe this agitation. "'Why on earth didn't you come to tea?' she asked. "'I couldn't make out what had become of you.' Oh, "'I had a dreadful headache,' answered Margaret, trying to control herself. Susie flung herself down wearily in a chair. Margaret forced herself to speak. 
"'Had Nancy anything particular to say to you?' she asked. "'She never turned up,' answered Susie irritably. "'I can't understand it. I waited till the train came in, but there was no sign of her. Then I thought she might have hit upon that time by chance and was not coming from England, so I walked about the station for half an hour.' She went to the chimney-piece on which had been left the telegram that summoned her to the Garde du Nord and read it again. She gave a little cry of surprise. "'How stupid of me! I never noticed the postmark. It was sent from the Rue Littray.' This was less than ten minutes' walk from the studio. Susie looked at the message with perplexity. "'I wonder if someone has been playing a silly practical joke on me.' She shrugged her shoulders. "'But it's too foolish.' "'If I were a suspicious woman,' she smiled, "'I should think you had sent it yourself to get me out of the way.' The idea flashed through Margaret that Oliver Haddo was the author of it. He might easily have seen Nancy's name on the photograph during his first visit to the studio. She had no time to think before she answered lightly, "'If I wanted to get rid of you, I should have no hesitation in saying so.' "'I suppose no one has been here,' asked Susie. "'No one.' The lie slipped from Margaret's lips before she had made up her mind to tell it. Her heart gave a great beat against her chest. She felt herself redden. Susie got up to light a cigarette. She wished to rest her nerves. The box was on the table, and as she helped herself her eyes fell carelessly on the address that Haddo had left. She picked it up and read it aloud. "'Who on earth lives there?' she asked. "'I don't know at all.' answered Margaret. She braced herself for further questions, but Susie, without interest, put down the sheet of paper and struck a match. Margaret was ashamed. Her nature was singularly truthful, and it troubled her extraordinarily that she had lied to her greatest friend. Something stronger than herself seemed to impel her. She would have given much to confess her two falsehoods, but had not the courage. She could not bear that Susie's implicit trust in her straightforwardness should be destroyed, and the admission that Oliver Haddo had been there would entail a further acknowledgment of the nameless horrors she had witnessed. Susie would think her mad. There was a knock at the door, and Margaret, her nerves shattered by all that she had endured, could hardly restrain a cry of terror. She feared that Haddo had returned, but it was Arthur Burden. She greeted him with a passionate relief that was unusual, for she was by nature a woman of great self-possession. She felt excessively weak, physically exhausted, as though she had gone on a long journey, and her mind was highly wrought. Margaret remembered that her state had been the same on her first arrival in Paris, when, in her eagerness to get a preliminary glimpse of its marvels, she had hurried till her bones ached from one celebrated monument to another. They began to speak of trivial things. Margaret tried to join calmly in the conversation, but her voice sounded unnatural, and she fancied that more than once Arthur gave her a curious look. At length she could control herself no longer and burst into a sudden flood of tears. In a moment, uncomprehending but affectionate, he caught her in his arms. He asked tenderly what was the matter. He sought to comfort her. She wept ungovernably clinging to him for protection. "'Oh, it's nothing,' she gasped. "'I don't know what is the matter with me. I'm only nervous and frightened.' 
Arthur had an idea that women were often afflicted with what he described by the old-fashioned name of vapours, and was not disposed to pay much attention to this vehement distress. He soothed her as he would have done a child. "'Oh, take care of me, Arthur. I'm so afraid that some dreadful thing will happen to me. I want all your strength. Promise that you'll never forsake me.' He laughed as he kissed away her tears, and she tried to smile. "'Why can't we be married at once?' she asked. "'I don't want to wait any longer. I shan't feel safe until I'm actually your wife.' He reasoned with her very gently. After all, they were to be married in a few weeks. They could not easily hasten matters, for the house was not yet ready, and she needed time to get her clothes. The date had been fixed by her. She listened sullenly to his words. Their wisdom was plain, and she did not see how she could possibly insist. Even if she told him all that had passed, he would not believe her. He would think she was suffering from some trick of her morbid fancy. "'If anything happens to me,' she answered with the dark, anguished eyes of a hunted beast, "'you will be to blame.' "'I promise you that nothing will happen.' End of chapter 8